Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'll be talking to interesting people who are doing interesting things. A common thread among many guests is that they are living their dream. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dream. So let's get started. I'm honored to welcome Elliot Kalin as my first guest. Elliot is the four-time Emmy Award-winning most recent former head writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He has a passion for and almost encyclopedic knowledge of films, and you should check out The Flophouse, which is the acclaimed podcast that he co-hosts about movies that are, well, flops. Elliot is an accomplished comic book author, having written many Marvel titles, including the popular Spider-Man and the X-Men, 2014's Wolverine Annual Number no. 1, and a humor book called Shame Itself. Elliot performs as a stand-up comedian, has hosted several talk shows, and has written for publications as diverse as Metro Newspaper and Discover Magazine. On a personal note, he is perhaps the nicest person you could be lucky to meet. Elliot, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Jessica. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. It's going to be fun. Congratulations on your recent Emmy win for writing a variety series. Thank you very much. How did it feel? It felt fantastic. We had won in years past, and this was the only year where I would be up as having been the head writer for the entire year. And so I wanted it much more than any previous nomination, which in my mind meant we were the least likely to get it of any of them, and I would be the most crushed if we didn't win. Uh, but then we won, and it was amazing. So I heard your speech, and I think one of the things that stuck out at me is that you thanked John for taking on individuals, and the way that you phrased it was starting them at the bottom of the totem pole and allowing them to raise up to the top. And that's certainly been your story. Let me go a little bit farther back than when you started with The Daily Show. I actually want to go to childhood. And I'm just curious, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Did you always know that you wanted to be a comic? Tell me about that. Pretty much. I know a lot of people that I know had that period when they were growing up, when they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And I didn't really have that. By the time I was five or six, I was writing stories and things, like not good stories, but like very basic stories that usually involved like a dinosaur or a dragon doing one thing and then the story was over. But writing things and working with words was something that I always liked doing as a kid. And doing funny things was a thing that I liked doing as a kid. And growing up, I was very big into comedy. Like, I didn't necessarily see it as a career option, but just because I didn't know anybody who did that, I would memorize different stand-up routines and memorize different old sketches and things like that. And so by the time I was in, like, high school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I, at the time, wanted to be a film writer and still do and hope to grow up to be a film writer at some point. But knew I wanted to do some kind of writing and comedy was something that just kind of came to me relatively naturally, uh, that by the time I was in college, it was like, okay, comedy is what I'm going to do, and comedy is a thing that I can do easily in my spare time because it costs nothing. I tried to get a sketch comedy group started. It turned out only two of us in the four-man group were actually writing any material, and so he and I, the, the other guy, Brock Mahan, who is a television writer and producer now, we became a sketch duo and were performing 
on the side and small, like renting out a theater and all of our relatives would come see the show and we'd like break even and then we'd do another show like four months later where we did the exact same thing and no new audience was coming in. It was just our relatives coming in. Our first performance was at like Barnes Noble Employee Talent Night because I was working at a Barnes Noble at the time. It just felt like that was what I was going to do if I could. So where were you in college? I went to NYU to their uh, what was then called the Dramatic Writing Program and I assumed I'd go from there to writing for film. And that's not what happened. So what did happen? What happened was, so I was doing a lot of comedy stuff on the side, mainly watching comedy, but also like talking to Brock about how we would do comedy shows if we were doing them. And you had to intern somewhere by the end of your time there. And I knew a previous uh, student there had interned at The Daily Show. And that was my favorite show at the time. Like, So I wanted to try to intern there. And luckily, my dad, who is not in entertainment, he was at a dinner at someone's house who he was friendly with. And that person was also friends with a man named Paul Penalino, who's one of the directors for the show and is the nicest man in the world. My dad, because he is shameless and will say anything to anybody, he said, oh, uh, my son would like to intern at that show. Can I have him send you his resume? And Paul, being real like the nicest person said yes of course thankfully my dad is like that sent my resume to paul and he passed it on to the people who were in charge and they called me in to interview me this show was kind of in approaching the form that it was going to be in but it was still small enough that even as an intern i feel like i got to know a lot of the people who worked there and did a good enough job impressing them as an intern that they asked me to interview for a production assistant position that thankfully opened up just as i was graduating from school and it was like this great two or three week period where I like turned 21 and graduated from college and got hired by this show that like I was such a big fan of and thought was so amazing. To work at that show and to get in when I did and ride with it during the time that I did when I feel like it really came into its own was it's a pretty amazing experience. So I owe a lot to my dad being kind of like a, bo- a bold jerk sometimes <laughs> and just kind of like if he sees something he, th- he thinks someone will want just being like hey can we have that sure okay yeah thank god for dad mm-hmm. thank god yeah. for dad i should tell I sh- i'll text him a thank you later i don't thank him enough for that it's a good idea so i was an intern for one semester of school and then i was a production assistant for about two and a half years and so it was about two and a half years and i was getting pretty antsy and getting ready to either try something desperate or leave And another production assistant, Jimmy Don, Jimmy and I were PAs for pretty much the same amount of time, and we were both ready to do something else. We put together this kind of last-ditch thing where in our spare time, we wrote and shot and edited two pitch segments, shot those, and then made copies on VHS tape because that's when this was happening, was before DVDs were easily writable, you know, for consumers, and wrote a cover letter saying, like, we think we're capable of doing more here and we just wanted to give you a, a look at what we can do and left them on the desks of all the executive producers which is like a pretty ballsy move looking back but at the time it was like yeah yeah we know these people whatever we'll just leave it on their desks and like not even bring it to them but just leave it there for them to find it's such a passive aggressive way to try to get a promotion what'd they say what was the response the response was very positive you know the the executive producer at the time ben carlin who's since gone on to do a lot of other things he was very complimentary about it and said, we're expanding the this footage production department, and so we'd like to hire you as, or promote you to be associate segment producers. And we were like, yeah, we did it. So how long were you in that position? How did we get to writer I was the Daily I Show? I did that for 
about three and a half years. In that position, I was working much more closely with the writers. I was working much more closely with John and getting to know even more how the show gets put together and how a headline is put together and structured and being in meetings where I could pitch more ideas of my own and pitch mm-hmm. jokes of my own. And it was like I was able to get practice at contributing to the show that way, even if I wasn't actually writing for the show. And at the same time, in my spare time, I was doing a lot of comedy writing to kind of get my chops up as best as I can. And writing a, I was writing a weekly column for the Metro newspaper, I think, like you mentioned in the intro. It was helping me to figure out how to, how to make jokes in kind of a limited amount of word space and things like that. And then eventually, a writer named Rachel Axler left for the first time they removed the rule that people on staff couldn't submit for writing positions, and so I t- took advantage of it and they and spent a weekend putting together my writing packet and submitted it and then waited a long time for them to read through all the submissions. They called me and and to John's office and told me that I had the job. It was great and how long were you a writer prior to becoming head writer? About five years and, and how does that transition happen to go from writer to head writer? That's huge. Uh, the head writer left, and they asked me to take his place. But up, up to that point, I had been—I really wanted to be either head writer on the show or leave at a certain point. I loved being a writer there for probably like four years, and then I was starting to feel like, all right, like I've done this, like I've done this for a while, and talking to my agent about what are the things there to do, and uh, and I don't think that there's much room for me to move up. And I became—I started to get resentful. For no reason. Like, they, I'd never been promised that I would be head writer. Like, there was no reason for me to think it was inevitable. But I started to feel, like, resentful that it was not happening. And I had to kind of trick myself into being a better employee where I said, well, if I come in every day and I'm doing a terrible job because I, like, don't care because I don't think they're going to make me head writer, I'm going to do a really bad job and then they're definitely not going to make me head writer. So... Even if they don't do it, I'm going to put in as good an effort as I can, and then at least I know if I end up leaving because there's no advancement, I'll know I gave it my best shot, and I can genuinely resent them for not giving me what I think I deserved because I tried as hard as I could. So I tricked myself, and I said, every day, go in and say to yourself, today is the day you found out through some means that they're auditioning you for head writer, but they didn't tell you that. But you know that they're watching you especially closely today to see if you deserve this job. And I told myself that every morning for a couple months to, like, get myself back to a place where I was doing as doing as good a job as I could and where I was being as enthusiastic in the office and enthusiastic about my work as I could. And not just, like, writing as strong a joke as I could but being as productive a presence, as supportive a presence as I could be in meetings or when I'm working one-on-one with another writer or, like – I came up with a lot of, like, strategies and maxims and things to help me navigate times when I was feeling either frustrated or complacent, um, which with any creative job is going to happen, even a job as great as that one. And the, John Oliver announced that he was leaving, and I was called into John's office, and they said, uh, oh, well, Tim, the head writer, is leaving to go with John. So actually, the way that they said it was, John said to me, he goes, Elliot, I don't know if you know that today is a Jewish holiday. And it was weird. As soon as I walked into the room and saw that it was just him and Steve, the executive producer, I kind of like knew what they were going to tell me. 
because if there's if it's a room with just your bosses and they're not like immediately joking around, they're either gonna like fire you or they have really good news. And I was like, I've been working really hard. <laughs> they're not gonna fire me, are they? So I I walked and today is a is a Jewish holiday. It's the day when Elliot Kalin became head writer of The Daily Show, and I was like, what? Uh? And he said, Tim is leaving to go with John Oliver. We want you to take over the position. And they were like, I think they said, like, think about it for a little bit. I'm like, yeah, yeah, think about it. I'll see if that's what I want to do. And it was a crazy time because my son was due in January of 2014. And they said, you're going to start as head writer when we get back from our break over the New Year's. They asked Tim to stay on for a couple weeks extra, which was very nice of him that Tim Carvel did that so that I could have a paternity leave. My son was born on January 1st, and then I was I had like a couple days before the paternity leave kicked in. Then I had two weeks of paternity leave, and then I went and started this new job. And I had had very little training on it, and so I feel like I could have done a better job than I did right off the bat. It was a very it was like a, a very crazy time. It was like boom, you're a dad now. Okay, boom, now you're in managing this department. All at the same time, it was a big like chapter turn in the book, you know. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a second, how you manage such a busy professional career with a burgeoning family life. But I want to stick with The Daily Show for now. And I'm just curious, what is the difference between a writer and a head writer? Why don't we start there and then I'll ask you a few more questions about the process and how you get this amazing show off the ground every single night. So the difference between writer and head writer is a big one. When you're a writer, your job is like 95% writing. But when you're Head writer, it's probably like 80% management and like 20% writing. But most of the day was assigning assignments to people, making sure the writers had the materials they needed, making sure that the segment producers were working properly with the writers, that the writers were working properly with the segment producers. You know, managing a department. That that, that so much of it is not uh, being responsible just for yourself, but being responsible for now 11 other people. When I was a staff writer, if another writer handed in a script that was subpar, I'd be like, uh, sucks for them. What are you going to do? But if a, now if a writer handed a script that was subpar, I'm not like, it's not like John would be like, what's, what's the meaning of this? But I'm responsible for making sure that he gets the best material he can get. If there were any issues between writers, trying to mediate that. If there was anyone who was causing problems with other departments for whatever reason, you know, having to sit them down and be like, don't do that. There was a, a lot of it was management stuff, dealing with the production department and with the footage that was involved, not in terms of like doing the work, but just making sure those departments worked as smoothly together as possible. But just a just a totally different set of skills. So tell me about how you do get this show off the ground on a nightly basis. What's the process? What does the day look like? Is it a scripted day? How do you decide what you're going to focus on each night? Well, so the process is probably different by now under Trevor. I can, I'll tell you how the process was when I was there, which was kind of like a series of meetings punctuating the day with like creative work being done a little bit in the meetings and then in between them. And hopefully we had started working on something the afternoon before for that day's show. Uh, and we'd come in in the morning and we'd look at new footage on what we had been talking about uh, and maybe some other new ideas. And then... And that's the writers and the segment producers and uh, people from some of the other departments. That meeting at one point was at 9, and then it was at 9.15, and then it was at 9.30. Uh, but I would always get in a half hour before the meeting just so I could, like, look at the news and answer, like, two emails because that was maybe all the emails I was going to get answered that day. 
and kind of settle in. So we would have that meeting, and then about 15 minutes into it, John would come in, and he'd either be like, yeah, that sounds great, okay, uh, what if we did it this way, da-da-da-da-da. Or he'd be like, did you hear this thing? Did you see this thing that happened? This, you know, And he'd want to do something often totally different than what we had been talking about before, and we'd have to scrap all those other plans. And then we would talk about what is this story, like how, do, how does John feel about it, how do we feel about it, What's a way that we can express that comedically so it's not just, you know, uh, responding to sound bites? And then splitting that up into assignments based really on how many writers we had available, how much material there was to cover. So then the writers would go off with their assignments working usually separately. And they'd have in – a, in a perfect world, they would have had a couple hours the day before and then a couple hours that morning. And then I would have – the morning production meeting where the rest of the staff would be told what was going on at that day's show. Are there any other announcements? I'd have to remember or write down those to make sure to tell the writers later. The executive producers and me and John in his office where we'd talk about other things going on that day or if there was stuff coming up later in the week that we needed to talk about. Usually around 11.15 to 11.30, the the scripts would come in and John and the executive producers and I would get together in the conference room and read through all the scripts, talk a little bit about them, and then call the writers in. And John would give them his notes. I would type up an outline. He would be running through what the way he saw the headline coming together, and I would type up an outline as detailed as I could make it with specific jokes mentioned that he talked about, like a little slightly different wording than the way he put some things because I knew that he didn't want them to just kind of like write down whatever he said. He wanted them to try to top him and put their spin on it. The writers then would be depending on how much time we had, would either be split up again to work individually or would work in duos and work off of that outline to write another pass at the script. And while they were doing that, we would talk with the production department to see like what graphics they should start working on, what props we might need to build, like what kind of footage do we know we need to order based on what we're doing now. This would be like the one of the two periods of the day when I could go use the bathroom if I needed to. Then the writers would hand in their scripts. Only two? <laughs> The two that I could count on. You never. There might be one in the morning that I could use also if they if the meeting in John's office ended early. But otherwise, there were these two periods when I knew I could go to the bathroom and not miss anything. And even then, like sometimes I'd be paged and I'd be like, "Well, they're going to wait for me." <laughs> you know, everything was. We had to hit very specific deadlines throughout the day. But if you give me a time of day, I could tell you exactly kind of where I was and what I was working on at that point in the day. Uh, and so around between 1 and one thirty, ideally 1, but it was getting more and more closer to one thirty as time went on, the second draft would come in. John and me and the, exe- and the executive producers would get together. We'd read through that, and John would give us new notes. And then Steve Bodo, one of the executive producers, and I would split up the script. Uh, usually I would take Act 1, which would be the main headline, and Steve would take Act 2. Or if there was a chat, he'd usually take that with a, with a correspondent. Then we would do our rewrite based on John's new notes and also based on like if there was a joke in there we really didn't like or we knew John wasn't going to like later on, we'd cut it out. And I would usually end up working on that between like 145, 150 and like 2.30. And in theory, 2.30 was like the drop-dead time that needed to be in the hands of Kira, our script supervisor, so she could clean it up and get all the copies out to everyone who needed it. And I almost never met that deadline depending on just – when we started and how much work needed to be done on it. And sometimes it was very minimal and I could take my time like futzing around with one joke because there wasn't that much to do. And sometimes it was the script would come in and John would go, no, 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 we need to do this and this and turn this around and we should go from this point to this point. And it would mean I had like 
30 or 40 minutes to like massively restructure the script. And so, of course, I'd be late. Like, I'm only human, you know. Was that stressful or did it happen enough that you were used to it? No, it was, I was both used to it and it was very stressful. And like, this is a, uh, a job that I really liked a lot and I was very satisfied with it a lot. But it was, I would get a lot of headaches and be very irritable. And like, it's, I had a very short temper for a while when I was doing it. And while you're restructuring the script, in those 30 to 40 minutes, what are the other writers doing? So I had all these rules I had to give myself to make sure I hit something close to the deadline. So I could easily find myself spending 10 minutes trying to work out a joke where I was like, I'm almost there, but I'm not quite there. I'm not getting it. And that's 10 minutes I can't really afford. So I would give myself a limit of like four minutes. Like if I don't have a new joke for this in four minutes, then I will call a gang and the and the writer's assistant would, would gather the writers for a gang and they would come up with those jokes. And then I would pick from those which one I liked best and put it into the script. Or, so the writers are kind of on call. Yes. During that period, they're on they're on call for those. They might be ganging the over-the-shoulders, which were the, the puns that would go in the graphics. Some of them might be working on future assignments that are more long-term things. And if they're not doing that, then ideally they were looking for pitches online or watching TV to see what might come up that was pitchable. Uh, although often like there was one guy that took naps all the time during that time and like a lot of people would be on Facebook or just kind of hanging out, which is fine. Like they, you need a certain amount of downtime for that type of job. Like your brain is so overheated when you're working that like you need some time that you're not working. They would be working on that stuff. We're not working on that stuff. And I would hand in my version of the script a little bit late, then go use the bathroom. I'd call up the script supervisor and say the script is in and then I'd go use the bathroom and then either – There'd be an issue with the script that the script supervisor would call me about, like maybe there was a typo or maybe there was an artifact from an old version of it, like a production element that I hadn't changed when I needed to change it, until 3.15, which would be when we would do an afternoon meeting that someone – at some, before I was head writer, somebody named it the Lafternoon Meeting as like an ironic stupid thing, like this would be a dumb name for it. That's really stupid, Lafternoon Meeting, but then we called it that anyway. During that time – uh, Adam Lowe, one of the executive producers, would go to John's office and say, like, he had been running a meeting where they were looking at possible things for the next day. And so he would go to John's office and say, there's this, this, and this. And John would talk about what he wanted to do in that day's show. And at the beginning, I would go with him into those meetings, but eventually I was so slammed on the scripts that I was never free in time to go to those meetings, uh, which was too bad. So I would talk to Lowe and he would say, this is what John's interested for tomorrow. Uh, at the 315 meeting, I would present those takes to the writers and we'd watch some of the footage and the writers would pro- usually tell me like, I don't think that works, da 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 and I'd be like, well, let's try anyway. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Or sometimes they'd be enthusiastic about it and they'd want to work on it, but usually not. I would assign out to writers like, start working on this for tomorrow's show. And then at 4 o'clock, it was rehearsal time. The writers who worked on that day's show and the EPs and me would go down and John would rehearse the show. Usually the Act 1 headline we would then go into the rewrite room and all work on that together. And the act two bit, John would give notes at the desk to the writers who worked on it, and they'd go off and rewrite that. And when they were done, and when we were done with the act one headline, we'd look at that again, and John would rewrite that part also. Um, Did he rewrite a lot? Yeah. John was the alpha and the omega of that show. Like the vast majority of the ideas for the show came from him, and the vast majority of the end point came from him. It's something that that I really admire and that I really 
respect, and it's frustrating from a writer's point of view because you want your jokes on the show. And the only way you have of gauging how well you're doing as a writer on the show is how many jokes you get on the show. And so to have a boss who is – and a host who is so involved in the show and wants the show to reflect the way he's feeling about this and what he thinks is funny about it as closely as possible, that's a very good thing for the show. And it's a very good thing for the audience, but sometimes it can be a frustrating thing for the writers. But it, and ultimately, it's a good thing. And like the reason that show was so successful and the reason that it was so well articulated and so pointed and had such a consistent point of view is John. And so John would, depending on the day, he'd either rewrite it a little bit or he'd rewrite it a lot. But he'd always rewrite at least some of it just because he wanted to reflect his point of view and his voice and have a joke in it that he wanted in it as much as possible. In fact, I'm curious. I wonder if he was always reading off the teleprompter or not because when you watch him, everything is so completely natural and it almost feels like his jokes are impromptu. Some of it is improvisational, definitely. Like he, The jokes are scripted and the points are scripted, but he would play with the wordings and he would add jokes if the audience had a specific reaction. Sometimes a joke would come to him in the moment and he would say it. So he, him being, one, an amazing performer – and to knowing how to play an audience amazingly and to watch the way he could ride an audience's reactions was a, was a real education and astounding. And so like even if it was scripted, it didn't feel scripted, partly because he was saying what he believed and what he wanted to say. So he's so good. Like, he, you know, he was super consistent all the time. Once the show was usually done being rewritten by like 5.30 and then we would tape at 6 o'clock, we taped as close to time as possible. So like we very rarely did retakes unless we would have a big – Either if there was a production problem or we had an edit point that we needed to cover because the act ran too long. And then we were done, kind of, Whew. but, not, but oh, not really. No, because then, <laughs> it's a long day. Because when the sh- during the show taping, I was in my office doing a few other things. I was like approving what was going to go out on the Twitter feed in terms of jokes, answering questions writers might have about their assignments for the next day. And then uh, and there was a packet – of pitches, I was going to say pitch packet because that's the name of it. There was a pitch packet of what pe- what pitches people had emailed out, and also a sheet for the next day's headlines to give show John like what what's the shape of the show right now for tomorrow. And right after the show, we would have our post mortem meeting, which was sometimes talking about that day's show and if there was anything that came up that was a problem. But usually, John looking through the pitches and then saying like, "I'm interested in this," and looking at the next day's plan and being like. Okay, that sounds good. Or actually, maybe let's do this thing instead. And I would send out an email to the staff saying, like, here's what tomorrow's plan is. And here's the footage that it would be great if you could bring up. And here's another idea John liked. So if we could look at that, that would be good. And trying as best as I can to send emails to the writers who worked on that day's show with feedback, either like, really good job, John liked this a lot, or here's a thing that it would be great if we could work on. So usually by like 7.15, 7.30, I could go home. And then it was just the one-hour commute to to Brooklyn from Hell's Kitchen, and then I was home just in time just in time to have dinner around 8.30 or 8.45 and then go to bed, bed at like 10.30. Oh, my gosh. It's about a 12-hour day, including commute time. The commute time was not so great, and my wife works in the same neighborhood, and so her commute is the same, and it's I feel bad that I no longer have that commute anymore, but she does. So you put on this show four nights a week, what were you doing the fifth day? On Friday, we were working either on stuff for Monday or long-term things. It was like, okay, here's a piece that's going to require much more research than usual or is much, the structure is going to be more intricate or more 
complicated or it involves a contributor who's coming in and we need to capture their voice differently than John's. So start working on that today. For some, And sometimes there wouldn't be enough assignments to go around and a writer would get like a day when they were just looking at pitches and kind of like resting their brain. When I was a writer, I certainly loved Fridays when I did not have an assignment and could just kind of like decompress. But weirdly enough, Fridays ended up being like, for me, as head writer, like just as busy as the other ones because I had to answer everyone's questions about what was going on with their – like what way they should handle their headlines and there would be meetings to go to. And especially as we got closer to John's last show, on Fridays we'd be working on things for that for that last show and for those last weeks. It was a, a very stressful job and it was a – throughout the day, it was kind of a nonstop job. And so eventually I just got burnt out over it. So is that why you ultimately left? It was a combination of number two reason feeling burnt out and number one reason I almost never got to see my son. I haven't regretted it an instant since then. A few weeks after the show ended, I was like, my head didn't hurt anymore. Like I wasn't getting neck pain the way I was anymore. I was sleeping better. Actually, no, that's not true. I was sleeping worse because I wasn't so exhausted all the time anymore that I like fell asleep instantly. And like I lost weight because there wasn't all, I wasn't like eating snacks at work because I was like stressed out. So and and when uh, at the Emmys I saw a lot of people that I hadn't seen for a while since I left the show, and they were like, "Is this what happens when you leave? Like, do you get healthy again?" I was like, "No, no, things are fine. This is just, you know, you should stay." Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so, is that what you're doing? Are you now a full time dad, or do you have side projects that you're working on? Are you thinking about the future and what you want to do? Or are you just taking time off and enjoying family time? I wish I was taking more time off. I'm probably thinking about the future a little too much. So I'm not full time dadding. I'm like more time dadding than I was before. But I have been writing spec pilots for ideas that I have that I'd like to develop, and there are a few people that I've been talking to about possible projects I could work with them on, uh, looking at if there are any shows out there that are either starting up or are new that it would be exciting to staff on and learn how different types of shows work. Like I really want to do something as different from The Daily Show as I can do. So trying to figure out what those opportunities are is what I'm doing right now and working on what is my own voice and what is my narrative voice so that I can understand myself creatively a little bit more in a way that I haven't for a while where I, when I've been working within someone else's voice for a long time. So like I spend a lot of days at the public library just like doing research and writing and taking advantage of the fact that they have free wireless and also tables that have electric sockets in them so you can plug your computer in. I've come to terms I think with the fact that whatever I work on next will not be at the same level as The Daily Show in terms of public perception when possible and you know likely in terms of quality too like it's that was just a special place to be but every time must come to an end we can't we can't we can't live in you know in the garden of eden forever we got to leave eventually well it was a great run you had there as you look back over your time at the daily show what are you most proud of what were the highlights uh there are a few segments that i worked on that i'm proud of just cuz i feel like i had a big input in them like a few of the very big Glenn Beck pieces that we did, but we did a couple of very big pieces with him, and there was one we did that was about an 18-minute segment that working with John on that, I just felt like I was totally within the rhythm of the show, and like I was clicking on and getting it and firing on all cylinders in a way that I didn't always, and there are a couple of the 
convention biography films that we did during presidential races that I worked on where I'm like, I had a big contribution to this and I can really feel like I take not authorship, but like part partial ownership of it in a big way. Overall, I'm just proud of like the entirety of that thing, you know, and being lucky enough to get to work with someone who I respected so much to get to work closer and closer with him to the point where I feel like we had a working relationship where he really respected what I could bring to the show and trusted me in that is something that I'm proud of. Like more than anything else that was on the show, like the way I feel like my relationship with him and with a number of the other people at the show grew is what I'm most proud of. It's wonderful. We're coming to the close of our show. But before we end, I want to ask, since I mentioned in the very beginning during my introduction that many of the people on this show are living their dream. So what advice do you have for writers out there, for comedians, for people that want to make it in the same way that you have? Uh, I think the main thing is to not be afraid to put yourself out there. You have to not be afraid to submit for things, to produce your own stuff and put it on the internet. It's never been easier to create material and content and get it looked at, hopefully, uh, than before in human history. Uh, to not be afraid to get in touch with places and professionally and respectfully say, like, I'm interested in this writing job. Like, are you hiring? They'll probably send you a form letter that says, like, no, we're not hiring right now and we don't take unsolicited submissions. But maybe they will take notice of you or they'll put you in the file that says, like, ask them to, to submit later. Like, the worst that happens is nothing happens. Nothing happens and you are exactly where you started. And the best that happens is you get a leg up or you get this position you're looking for to not wait for the perfect job, but instead take the job that's going to get you closer to where you want to be uh, and be open to opportunities that might take you in directions you didn't expect but might get you to where you want to be. And like there's the three rules that I've made for myself when I worked at Barnes Noble in retail right before I started The Daily Show, which were one, dress a little bit nicer than you have to. I always wore a tie at Barnes & Noble, which meant all the customers thought I was a manager, so they would listen to me when I told them things. And when I was an intern at the show, I never wore a T-shirt to work. I always wore a button-down shirt. And it might be a short-sleeve button-down shirt, but it was always a button-down shirt. And I don't think anyone really cared, but it made me feel more like this is a workplace and I want to be professional, like I'm not here to have fun. I did have fun there, but I'm here most of all to work, to work as hard as you can because most people don't, which was not something I realized uh, when I was younger. I was like, everybody does. if you're given a job, everybody just does it. And I didn't realize that if you give 100%, most people are giving like 50%. Or at a place like The Daily Show where everyone wants to succeed, even there people might be giving like 85%. So you look like you're giving this superhuman amount of effort just because you're doing as much as you can. So to dress a little bit better than you need to, work as hard as you can, and to always be nice to people. Because so much of this business is about personal relationships. One thing that, that I only realized in retrospect was like I was a friendly person, wanted to be pleasant to people, and I liked being around the people to show. And so they liked being around me, and you want to help people that you like. And so if there's an opportunity that opens up and someone who knows you and likes you knows about it, they'll tell you about it because they want to help you because they like you. And so the best networking I ever did – was just like making friends and being friendly with people and it came very naturally and those people wanted to help me out and I wanted to help them out. In your spare time, put yourself out there, get as good as you can at comedy, find people that share your sensibility and become friendly with them because you want to be. And and as everybody rises, they'll help each other out. 
and then people are like, oh, that's a nice guy. He dresses okay, but he's not crazily overdressed, and I can rely on him. I'll, I'll hire that guy. I'll promote him. Well, you are the nicest guy, and I cannot thank you enough for being here and for being my first guest. I had a blast. This was such an informative session. I learned so much about The Daily Show and about you. Four Emmys in your 30s. Unbelievable. I can't wait to applaud your future successes, and thank you so much. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.